brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to all kinds of writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm going to be talking to the physicist and futurist Professor Michio Kaku about his amazing book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. It was an enormous hit all over the world last year, and the paperback has just come out here in the UK. So I could say it's with great pleasure, Professor Kaku, we welcome you to the Penguin Podcast. Well, it's a great honour. I'm very happy to be on. Let's take two religions at random, uh, say Presbyterian Christians and, uh, and Buddhists, right? And they both have very separate theories about the beginning and the end. How can both of them argue that their position is right and scientifically in your world, both can be justified? Well, my parents were Buddhists. But growing up in America, my parents put me in a Presbyterian church. And so as a child, I had two rather mutually exclusive think thoughts in my mind about the origin of the universe, Genesis, things like that. In Buddhism, there is no beginning. There is no end. There's just nirvana. But in the Protestant church, of course, there's that instant of time when God creates the universe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But I think now, as a physicist, I can begin to meld these two diametrically opposed theories into one theory. And that is that science says that our universe had a beginning. There was a big bang. There was the creation of the universe in a gigantic fireball 13.8 billion years ago. But then the question is, is that all there is? No. Science says that there's a possibility that our universe can coexist with other universes. There's a multiverse of universes. So our universe is like a bubble. We live on the skin of the bubble, and the bubble's expanding. But now, physics comes in and says there's a chance that there are other bubbles out there. There's a multiverse of bubbles like a bubble bath with universes colliding with other universes, that's the Big Bang. Or universes fissioning in half, that could be the Big Bang. And where does it all take place? In Nirvana. So what is the arena of the bubble bath? Where do these bubbles bump into each other? Where do these bubbles exist? They exist in timelessness. They exist in something beyond our ken. In other words, String theory, which is what I do for a living, says that these bubbles float in 11-dimensional hyperspace. So in other words, we can now meld Buddhism with Christianity because our universe had a beginning, just like the Bible says. But in Buddhism, there is no beginning, there is no end, there is nirvana, which could be 11-dimensional hyperspace. At least that's what I think string theory is going towards. This is something that you have, not in the technical terms you think about it today, but the interest in this huge question goes back to you being a very young child, doesn't it? I mean, pre-high school. That's right. When I was eight years old, I still remember something happened which changed my life completely. 
The newspapers announced that a great scientist had just died, and they printed a picture of his desk. His desk with an empty book on the desk. It was opened up, but it was unfinished. And the caption said that the greatest scientist of our time could not finish this book. Well, I was fascinated by that story. What could be so hard that a great scientist couldn't finish it? Why didn't he ask his mother? Why didn't he simply go to the library and look up the answer? Well, I had to know, who is this man? What was this book? I went to the library, and I found out that this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was the unfinished manuscript of his greatest creation, the theory of everything. In other words, a one-inch equation that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Well, I was hooked. I had to learn everything about this man, everything about this theory. And now I'm proud to say that I actually work in this field professionally. I work in something called string theory, which we think but cannot yet prove, let me be very careful about that, we cannot yet prove, is this fabled theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. And this theory is based on music, the music of subatomic particles. So why do we have so many subatomic particles like electrons and neutrons and protons? They're nothing but different musical notes on a tiny vibrating rubber band or a string. So what is physics, which is what I do for a living? Physics is the laws of harmonies of these strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play on these vibrating strings. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God? The mind of God would be 11-dimensional hyperspace. That would be the mind of God. I mean, some would balk at the idea of even calling it a God equation. Well, these are the words of Einstein. And Einstein himself, of course, was asked numerous occasions, do you believe in God? And his answer was very clear. He did not believe in a personal God, a God that answers your prayers, the God that fulfills all your dreams, the God that walks on water and smites the Philistines. He did not believe in that God, but he believed in the God of Spinoza, the God of harmony, the God of unification, the God of elegance. He believed that the universe is so gorgeous that it's not random and ugly. It has order. You can write all the equations of science that we know of on one sheet of paper. That is amazing. On one sheet of paper, you can put down Einstein's theory and then the quantum theory, the standard model of particles, on one sheet of paper. Now, we want to get that down to just one-inch equation. That's what the book is all about. But these are the words of Einstein himself that he wanted to, quote, read the mind of God. Now, Galileo was asked the same question. And Galileo said that science, what is, what is science? Science is about determining how the heavens go. And then what is religion? Religion is determining how to go to heaven. 
So you see, science is about natural law, natural law, how the heavens go. But religion is about how to go to heaven. That is, we're talking about ethics, being a good person, obeying the commandments of your God. And so as long as we keep these two separate, they're complementary. Now, the problem occurs. The problem occurs when somebody who's a scientist begins to pontificate about ethics or someone who's an ethicist begins to pontificate about natural law. When we confuse the boundaries between these two, we get into all sorts of trouble. But as long as we understand the relationship between these two, there's no problem. They can actually help each other. And so that's why I think that Galileo's point of view shows the way of how to understand science and religion. Can science absolve itself, though, of ethical considerations? Well, to me, science is a sword. It's a double-edged sword. On one of the side of the sword, you can cut against disease, poverty, ignorance. On the other side of the sword, you can cut against people and unleash all sorts of agony on the world. And so science by itself is, in this sense, morally neutral, that we humans have to harness the sword to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. Now, most scientists, I think, would say that science is totally neutral morally. I don't quite agree with that. I think that science does have a moral direction, if you take a look, for example, at what science has given us with the internet, it's given us knowledge. It's given us awareness of what the world is about. And we begin to question things as a consequence. And so I think that's a good thing. People begin to question things. They begin to participate in the dialogue about important social issues. And so I think the internet promotes democracy. And democracy, in turn, I think, promotes peace, because it's very difficult to rouse people to have a war if you know both sides of the question. So I think that in some sense, in the modern sense, science does have a moral direction. It enlightens us. It shows us that there are different points of view that could be ironed out peacefully. A number of times recently, Professor Kako, I've interviewed people who have achieved what they thought they always wanted to achieve. And when they did, they didn't feel how they thought they would feel. In terms of searching for the God equation, is it about finding it? Or is it actually about learning to ask better questions? Well, I think the real thrill of science is the thrill of discovery. Realizing that you know something that nobody else on the planet Earth knows. You're the only member of Homo sapiens that happens to know this one thing because you've made that breakthrough. Now, before we get to the theory of everything, we can get halfway steps. And that is what is called string field theory. The field theory of vibrating strings. That's what I did. That's my contribution is that I'm the co-founder of string field theory. However, let's be honest, we now realize that strings can vibrate with membranes. Membranes, not just strings, but membranes like a drum head, uh, like a musical instrument that vibrates 
Um, so we now realize that membranes can coexist with strings, and we're still looking for the field theory of membranes and strings. And so if any of your listeners out there, if any of your listeners ever find out the field theory of strings and membranes, what should you do? You should tell me first. We'll publish together and we'll win the Nobel Prize together. But at what point throughout your many years in the fields of physics has an answer not just led to more questions? Well, I think the best science of all is a science that raises more questions than you anticipated at the beginning. <laughs> that means you're hitting gold. That means that the more you dig, the more gold there is, okay? If it was just one diamond, just one diamond you see on the ground, well, that's nice, but then that's the end. That's it. There's no more ongoing curiosity and the thrill of discovery. The best thing is when you realize that you're onto something deeper, that there are more layers to understanding. Now, string theory was discovered backwards. It was discovered by accident. We were not really supposed to see the theory in this century. It is so complex and so gorgeous and beautiful. I like to think of it as walking on the desert one day and you bump into a rock. You stumble over a rock in the desert. You brush away the sand and then you realize that it's not a rock at all. It's the top of a pyramid, a gigantic pyramid. And you brush away all the sand and you go through layers and layers of chambers, strange hieroglyphics, strange incantations and things. And finally, you excavate a gigantic pyramid, a huge pyramid. And now you're at the entrance and you're just about to open the door. That's where I think we are with string theory. It was discovered quite by accident. It's a bizarre theory. No one expected it. Mathematicians have been bowled over by this theory. New areas of mathematics have opened up. It's not supposed to be this way, right? The mathematicians are supposed to be first. Nope. String theory was first in many areas, and then the mathematicians caught up to us. And now I think we're at the very bottom. After decades of discovery, I think we're finally at the bottom stage where we can open the door and find that one-inch equation. The driving force behind you wanting to brush away further and further that sand and discover more and more is curiosity. What happens to so many young people the ages 15, 16, 17 in the high school system in America and indeed I'm sure here in the education system in the UK that can be the enemy of curiosity? Well, I think that we're all born scientists. We're born that way. We want to know where we came from. We want to know where the stars shine. We want to know about this and we want to know about that. We're born scientists. And then we hit the biggest destroyer of science known to science, junior high school. That is school around the age of 13, 14, 15. Every day, a few hundred thousand children just got discouraged and closed their science textbook and said, no, I do not want to become a scientist. Because when you hit 13, 14, 15, science becomes memorization. Memorizing silly facts and figures that you're never going to use in your life anyway, totally irrelevant details. And people begin to think 
that, oh my God, science is boring. Science becomes memorizing. Memorizing the parts of a flower, for example, rather than understanding the evolution of plants and the evolution of flowers. Einstein once said that unless a theory can be explained to a child, the theory is probably worthless. I think what he meant was great science is based on principles, concepts, not giving names to things. It's the principle, the concept that makes things work. Then once you understand the concept, the principle, you understand, ah, that's how it works. And then you can predict things. You can apply that principle to other things. That's how science is done, rather than simply giving names to things. And so I think that young kids, when they hit the age of 13, 14, 15, they should be taught principles. Why does it rain? Evolution, what drives evolution? And these principles will stay with you for the rest of your life. Uh, let me give you a simple example. Look at the weather. When you see the weather chart on TV, it's a, a bunch of random symbols that don't make any sense, right? But when I was a kid, someone explained to me that, why does it rain? Well, hot air bumps into cold air. And the boundary between hot air and cold air, that's where it rains. And I said to myself, my God, that's right. That explains all the charts and all the diagrams. It's the collision of air masses that gives you rain and snow and things like that. That's a principle. That's a concept. And these concepts stay with you for the rest of your life, not the name of the cloud or, or the name of the rainstorm. So when my 12-year-old comes home and says, oh, I've got to learn the periodic table and I'm bored, I don't want to do this, should I quote to her your good self and say, you go and tell your teacher that just knowing the names of the periodic table is pointless unless you understand what those chemicals are and what they do and how we interact with them and how they interact with us. Yeah. So I would teach people that when you take a look at the periodic chart, you can explain the entire chart by thinking about music. The music of resonances, the lowest resonance in an atom, the lowest vibration, the lowest musical note, there are two electrons that can fill the lowest note, hydrogen and helium. And that's why hydrogen is so volatile, because it has one electron that can combine to blow up things and give explosions. But helium is totally inert, because it has two electrons that fill the first level. So the first musical octave, the first octave is hydrogen and helium. The next octave up, okay, you get beryllium, lithium, carbon, and so on and so forth. That's the next musical note. And then if you look at the periodic chart, my God, that's right. They're based on levels, levels that look like the resonances of a vibrating string. And so once you realize that it's resonances that make the shells of an atom, then it doesn't seem so random anymore. When I look at the periodic chart, I know exactly what properties some of these elements may have simply by thinking of music. How important is it for people who are studying theoretical physics to have an understanding of philosophy alongside science? Well, Steve Weinberg, Nobel laureate and one of the great uh, quantum physicists of our time, wrote a book with a chapter in it. And that chapter was called 
against philosophy. In that chapter, he wanted to denounce philosophy as a bunch of nonsense. Lots of nice words that mean nothing. Lots of philosophical debates that are pointless. But of course, some of the deepest mysteries of the universe are all philosophical. Was there a creation? What happened before creation? Why was there a creation to begin with? Why is there something rather than nothing? These are deep philosophical questions. So I think what Professor Weinberg was getting at is that the philosophy you learn in philosophy courses in college, most of that is pointless. Arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Pointless. But the greatest questions in science are all philosophical. And so I think we have to respect philosophy, not for calculating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but because it raises questions about existence. Why are we here? Why didn't it turn out a different way? Could there be other universes and other worlds? You know, Einstein was guided by one question, and that question was, did God have a choice? Could he have created another universe different from ours? Did God have a choice? That's what guided much of Einstein's research. And that, of course, is very philosophical. So there is no room for Nietzsche or Kant if you're a scientist? Well, this gets us into ethics and behavior. So I think that science says something about those things in terms of evolution and evolutionary psychology. It's like going out at night, looking up at the stars, and you can't help but be overwhelmed by the majesty and the splendor of the night sky. And you can't help it. You wonder, what does it all mean? Why? Why are there so many stars? What's out there? What's beyond those things? Ancients, the ancients were fascinated by these questions because they had the same experience that we have, which is an existential shock. You have an existential shock every night when you look up and you ask yourself, what does it mean? Okay. And so I think the ultimate questions are, in fact, philosophical. We can't help it. We're hardwired to try to answer that question. What does it all mean? Why does religion then sometimes fill that vacuum? Well, I think we have to look at it from an evolutionary point of view, that uh, ancient peoples thousands of years ago were at the mercy of thunderstorms and the weather and floods and things that were totally beyond their control. And they tried to make sense out of these things. And so they created gods, God of thunder and God of the sun and the God of this and the God of that. But again, that's giving a name to something, not explaining the sun, not explaining the stars. But that was the first attempt. That was the first attempt by humans to make sense of the world. Why is the world the way it is? Because that's the way the gods built it, okay? And if you worship them, maybe they'll be kind to you and, and open up things for you and give you a break. Then finally, after so many thousands of years, we began to discover natural law. And we began to understand that, well, if it rains, maybe there's a reason why it rains. And so we began again to discover natural law. 
And that's where we are today, discovering the natural law of why things are the way they are. And the God equation is the attempt to understand everything from a simple paradigm. Democritus, the great philosopher, thought it was atoms that make up everything. But Pythagoras of the Pythagorean theorem said, no, it's music. That's the theme of the universe. That's like Hinduism. Yeah, he plucked the lyre string and then he began to realize there were resonances, discrete notes on a lyre string. He went to a blacksmith shop and he saw swords being hammered and he realized the longer the sword, the lower the resonance. And he said, aha, it's the mathematics of resonances. That is what it all means. It all boils down to music. Everything is vibrating, but vibrating according to mathematics. And each vibration corresponds to something. That's why we have a diversity of things around us, because they're different musical notes. You see, Democritus could not answer that question. Do we have different kinds of atoms? How many kinds of atoms do we have? Why do we have so many atoms? But with music, you can actually count these things. One, two, three, you can count these things, measure these things, because they're nothing but musical notes. And that's what we physicists do today. We think the electron is a musical note. We think the neutrino is a musical note. And why do we have so many particles? Because they're just nothing but notes on a tiny vibrating string. Or at least that's what we think is happening. So then we could bring Hinduism alongside Christianity and Buddhism because Hinduism talks of a sound at the start of the universe, Om. And also Eugene Wigner, one of the founders of the quantum theory, who actually helped to build the atomic bomb, he was very much into Hindu mysticism because there is a part of quantum mechanics that is still unresolved even today. And this gets us into the cat problem. If I take a cat and put a cat in a box, how does a quantum physicist describe the cat in a box? Well, you write the wave function of a dead cat, and you add it to the wave function of a live cat, and the cat is neither dead nor alive. The cat is a mixture of a dead cat and a live cat. Now, of course, Einstein thought, this is stupid. You gotta be an idiot to think that cats can be dead and alive simultaneously. But hey, this is called the quantum theory. And when you observe it, that's when you know the cat is alive. Well, who observes the observer? How do you know the observer is alive? Well, somebody has to observe the observer. But who observes the observer observing the observer observing the observer? Ultimately, you have a chain, a chain of observers going up to cosmic consciousness. And believe it or not, this is one of the ways that we physicists resolve the problem of measurement. Why do we have so many observers? Because there's a cosmic observer that observes everything. So when you learn the quantum theory, you become a philosopher. And also, of course, it's a scientific class that is most welcoming to a Buddhist, a Hindu, and a Christian. And they can walk in there and have none of their basic beliefs challenged. When we talk about the universe, and we talk about why everything we see around us can be explained via a paradigm or through the lens of something. 
then we're dealing with cosmic themes that have no boundaries between people. The boundaries between people melt away because we've all had to grapple with the same sensation of awe, the same sensation of wonderment when we look at the universe as a whole. And so I think that the ancients, when they looked up and saw the night sky, they began to feel a bond, a bond with all the other humans who have looked up and have shaken their head, wondering, what is it all about? That was one thing that links all of us, the sense of wonderment looking at the universe. We always ask our esteemed guests to bring with them some objects that define their life experiences. Something that's challenged you, Foundation Trilogy by Asimov. Tell us more about why that challenged you. Well, when I was a kid, like a lot of kids, I used to read a lot of science fiction because you want to know what's out there in time. What is it going to be like when I grow up? What is it be like if one day we, we soar into the heavens and meet perhaps aliens from outer space? And then I came across Asimov's Foundation series, and that blew me away. Because he asked a question that I never asked myself. What is the world going to be like 50,000 years into the future? You know, we physicists say that some things defy the laws of physics, and therefore we can throw them out the window. For example, aliens from outer space. A lot of physicists say that there's no way that we could be visited by aliens from outer space, no flying saucers, because the distance between stars is so great. It would take hundreds, thousands of years for them to reach the Earth. Therefore, nope, no alien visitation. But you see, reading Asimov's novel, I had to ask myself the question, what is the world going to be like 50,000 years into the future? By that time, we may have the ability to create wormholes. That is, the fabric of space and time itself may be challenged by the energy content of a black hole to create a wormhole, a gateway through space and time. And so that opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to the fact that today, when we say it violates the laws of physics, no, it violates the known law of physics. Physics breaks down at a certain point. Where does it break down? At the Planck energy. At the Planck energy, which is 10 to the 19 billion electron volts, space itself becomes unstable. Everything you know about space and time have to be revised once you hit the Planck energy. And that's what reading Asimov's book did for me. It opened up my eyes to the concept that the so-called law of physics is only a partial understanding of the world as it actually is. Define Planck energy uh, in comparison to, say, the Large Hadron Collider. How much more powerful would Planck energy? It is the most powerful machine today. It can hurl protons up to 14 trillion electron volts. The Planck energy is the energy of the Big Bang. It is 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. That is a quadrillion a quadrillion times more powerful than our most powerful machine. At that point, the so-called laws of physics, as we know them, break down. Let me give you an example. If I have an ice cube and I heat it up, it turns into water. 
is a phase transition, ice to water. I heat the water up, what happens? It boils, bubbles form, and I get a gas. I heat that up, what happens? The atoms get ripped apart, they ionize, I get a plasma. I heat that up, and I keep heating that up. What happens when I hit the Planck energy? Bubbles form, bubbles of space. Space begins to boil. The boiling of empty space occurs at the Planck energy. And where do these bubbles take you? They take you to different points in space and time. We're talking about wormholes. And so in other words, we're talking about a new law of physics. Stephen Hawking called it the space-time foam. So he thought that if you heat up something far enough, space becomes foamy, like a bubble bath. This is the multiverse. Now, what is the multiverse? Ask any teenager who watches Marvel comics and Mar Marvel movie superheroes on the silver screen, they know what the multiverse is. We're talking about parallel universes right in a microwave oven. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Let's talk about music because you've mentioned that word so much. And tell us about Les Préludes by Franz Liszt and why that is an important object for you. Well, when I was eight years old, I was fascinated by two people. One, of course, is Albert Einstein, and I work on his theory professionally. But the other person that fascinated me was Flash Gordon. Every Saturday morning, I saw spaceships, aliens, monsters, invisibility shields, all the stuff you see in science fiction, and the music. The music of the Flash Gordon series was Les Prelude by Franz Liszt, and I was hooked. I've never heard such beautiful orchestral music, music with a fanfare, music that excites your blood, music that says, I want to hear more. And I think that everyone should have that experience as a child of hearing something that really stirs your imagination, really gets the blood going. And that's what Le Prelude did for me. However, to be fair, I should also point out that years later, I found out that governments will also use this thing to rile up their people as well. Adolf Hitler used Le Prelude to excite the German people to celebrate the victories of the Nazi army. And so I also realized that music can also be used for ill will. If you were to have a conversation, providing you'd broken the language barrier, with an intelligent life form from another planet, what would you ask them? Well, sometimes I think that when I write these equations on a sheet of paper, I hope that on the other side of the Milky Way galaxy, there's a young alien that is writing that same identical equation, but in different form. And that's what I like about science. When we scientists begin to analyze the hydrogen in outer space, we begin to realize it's the same everywhere. No matter how far we probe the universe, it was the same hydrogen, the same spectral lines of hydrogen everywhere you look. There's a universality to it all. And I think, therefore, that on the other side of the galaxy, I hope there's a young gentleman writing down the same equation, in different notation, of course, as the equation that I'm working on. 
So the hope is that what I'm doing is universal. And that's what separates, I think, science from culture. We, of course, respect culture. Culture excites us, inspires us. But culture is only found on the planet Earth. You cannot go into outer space and convince an alien about all the wonders of Shakespeare. However, science is different. It is universal. You can, in fact, inspire an alien on the other side of the galaxy about your equations because they are universal. But if they had managed to travel here from a long, long way away, then you would surely have questions about that journey, how they managed to get here, the speed at which, what propelled them here, surely. Once you can travel between stars, they have gone beyond the so-called known laws of physics into uncharted territory, which we think can be charted by, by string theory. But you're right. When we meet the aliens in outer space, if they're that advanced, then they would have already been able to master much of the laws of physics of today. You know, there was a Russian cosmologist, Nikolai Kardashev, who tried to mathematically categorize these civilizations. A type one civilization is planetary. They control the weather. They control earthquakes and volcanoes. Anything planetary, they control. Then beyond that is type two. A type two civilization can control the entire output of the sun. They play with stars like Star Trek and the Federation of Planets. That would be type two. Then there's galactic, type three civilization that plays with black holes, plays with galactic phenomenon. Now on this scale, what are we? Are we type one that can play with the weather? Are we type two that play with stars? Are we type three that roam the galactic space lanes? <laughs> no, we're type zero. We're just beginning. We're just beginning to understand the laws of the universe. But if they can visit us from out of space, that means more than likely they're probably type three. In other words, a civilization may be 100,000 years more advanced than us, a civilization that can break the light barrier by punching a hole through space and time. And then the question is, would they even want to visit us? Well, if you're walking down a country road and you see a squirrel, do you go down to the squirrel and talk to the squirrel? Well, maybe initially, but eventually you get bored because the squirrel has nothing to tell you, nothing interesting that the squirrel can offer. So I think for the most part, if we do meet aliens from out of space that have mastered the Planck energy, they are so far advanced that we're like squirrels to them. What a sobering thought that is, guaranteed to humble us all, even those with the most grandiose ambitions. Talking of ambitions, talk about ice skating, shall we, Professor? Well, you know, when I was a child, I used to watch these ice skaters perform these magical feats on ice. And I used to say to myself, well, gee, it's just physics. If you know physics, you should be able to do those things. So I took my children to the ice skating rink. And I paid good money to see my children fall down. That's all they did was fall down. So I said to myself, huh, I can learn how to ice skate. I can teach my kids. So I picked up a pair of skates. Took me a few years. But yeah, I finally got the hang of it. It's Newton's laws of motion. Action, reaction on the ice rink. And so now I can spin and jump on, on the ice. 
In fact, I've done it on TV. You can actually Google myself on, on the internet and see me ice skate. And I began to realize that I'm in tune with Newton's laws of motion. On the rink, everything is completely wiped out. Friction and bumps and all the agonies of life, totally gone. It's pure. It's instinctive. There you are. It's just you and Isaac Newton. It says you and the laws of motion. That's it when you go ice skating. And that's why I commune with the universe when I go ice skating. Professor Michio Kaku, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Penguin Podcast today. It's been revelatory. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, wherever you are, for listening to. I'll be back in two weeks when I'm going to be talking to Hanif Abdul-Rakib. Hanif is a poet, a music critic, and the author of A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance, which has been nominated for just about everything since it came out last year. I can't wait to have a conversation with him. Do let me know if you've got something you'd like to ask him. You can find us in all the usual places. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help us get the word out. And finally, as ever, we want to find out more about this podcast or Michio's work. All you have to do is go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. See you next time. Hold up. 